This is the preview to the Partially Examined Life, episode 267, part 2, where Dylan and I talk to Peter Adamson about Avicenna, whose name in Arabic is Ibn Sina, the 11th century Persian philosopher, talking about his argument for the existence of God and his argument that the soul is immaterial. You're going to hear an edited section from right at the beginning of the discussion where we get into some of the metaphysical and epistemological views that lurk behind these two arguments. Hope you like it. So I think we can reflect more, for instance, on this metaphysical picture behind the necessary and sufficient distinction that he makes, because it's not just that there's one necessary being and everything else could or couldn't have happened, because as you've said, Peter, God had to make the universe. So in a sense, everything is necessary. It's just that it's not necessary considered in itself. It's only necessary because it was necessitated by a necessary thing. That's right. So another way he expresses that is by saying that things other than God are necessary through another, whereas God is necessary through himself. Like the universe as a whole is something that by its very nature could have failed to exist or could exist. Both options are open for it. It has to be preponderated to exist or not exist. Notice, by the way, and this is a mistake people often make, they think that things left to their own devices will fail to exist. But actually, that's not true either, because a contingent being is something that by its very nature neither exists nor fails to exist. It's not like it would be non-existent unless God comes along and makes it exist. Until God comes along and does something, it will neither exist nor not exist by its own nature. There's no like default status that something has through itself or through its own quiddity. It actually needs something to preponderate it to either exist or not exist. And everything other than God that exists is preponderated to exist and thus made necessary through another. And a question that this obviously raises is if everything other than God is necessary through another, doesn't that make him a determinist? Because now it sounds like everything is necessary. Mm -hmm. And the short answer there is yes. So he's Leibniz. Rather, Leibniz is him. So this idea that there are possible worlds which could be actualized or not by God choosing them. Avicenna doesn't really think that there are an infinity of possible ways things could have been Mm -hmm. because he's more interested in the idea that there's all of the quiddities and he thinks that all the quiddities there could be have been actualized by God through his abundant generosity. So he would say that like unicorns and centaurs are actually not possible because if they were possible, God would have made them exist. Mm -hmm. So in Avicenna, you don't have this idea that this world is just one of many, many, many possible options for that. You need to go through Duns Scotus who's a medieval scholastic. But if you kind of have Avicenna and Scotus on the table, you can get to Leibniz. So Scotus gets all of his modal intuitions, so his intuitions, in other words, about necessity and contingency and impossibility. He basically gets that by modifying what Avicenna has done. And in particular, what's very important for Scotus is the idea that a contingent thing is something that could either be or not, or could exist or not. Once you have that core Avicenna idea, you can understand what Scotus is doing with like his theory of free will, because his idea of free will is that you choose between contingent options, right? So you can either act or not act. And both things remain possible, even when you pick one, because the other one is still possible. It's just that you preponderated it not to happen. Mm-hmm. But in itself, it's still possible, even though it didn't happen. And then Leibniz carries on that idea from Scotus. So there's a direct line from Avicenna to Scotus to Leibniz, as I understand it. So there's another reference to possible worlds. I believe this was in your article from 2018. The thought experimental method Avicenna's flying man argument 
where you're talking about, you know, why we would say that the soul necessarily is immaterial. It necessarily is not necessarily connected with the body. <laughs> and instead of possible worlds, Avicenna uses the term mental existence. We've considered the mind-body problem in terms of possible worlds before in Kripke and other folks where you would say, couldn't it be the case that like there's phenomenal experience and on one planet it's instantiated in a brain, but in some other possible world it's instantiated in some other substance. And like, you know, maybe as far as our skeptical minds are concerned, we don't even know which of those we're on. And so that's supposed to show for Kripke, for instance, that he uses that to say, we can't say that even if it is a contingent fact that our minds are instantiated in brains in human beings, that is not necessary to the concept of mind. But he has other notions where water is necessarily H2O, even though we might not know anything about chemistry. We don't know what H and O stand for. And so this phenomenal stuff, water, might, like the mind, like our experience of our brains, it might on different worlds, well, on one world it's H2O, but in another world, you have a similar phenomenal, you know, this this is liquidy, it seems, you know, like what we were talking about with water over there, but it's actually something else. In that case, it's actually, he says, well, in the second case, it wasn't actually water. It was a water-like experience, it was a water-like substance, but it's actually the thing that we don't know about, H2O, you know, just by pure intuition, that is, in fact, the essence of the thing. So can we bring this back to Avicenna? Somehow, when we conceive ourselves through the flying man experiment, we know everything that is essential about the self, even though we don't know, you know, until we do biology or brain science, how it's instantiated in this particular organism. The kind of background to all that is that he is an essentialist. Mm -hmm. So he thinks, and this is obvious from what we were already talking about in part one, that he thinks that things have quiddities and quiddities will settle certain things about a given thing and not others. So, for example, you can tell just by considering the quiddity of a triangle that its internal angles add up to 180 degrees. This is an example you have in Aristotle that Avicenna likes. He, he gives this as an example of an essential property. And in general, essential properties are the ones that can just be read off the essence. Although, actually, it might not be that easy. Right? You might need to actually do a lot of scientific inquiry to understand what all the essential properties of something are. Like There are other essential properties of triangles that are very hard to figure out. And even the thing about 180 degrees, like we think, oh yeah, obviously because of Euclid, but until Euclid figured that out, I guess it was Euclid who figured that out. Well, there's a proof for it. Yeah, there's a proof. It's not an axiom, right? So you can derive that. Yeah, exactly. But it's still essential to triangles, right? It's not part of the definition of triangles, but it follows from the definition of triangles. And similarly, you can tell from the definition of, let's say, giraffe, that giraffes have sense perception because their definition tells you that they're animals. I don't know what else would be in the definition of a giraffe, but it would surely include that they're animals. And animals have sense perception, in the Aristotelian paradigm at least. And then there are other things that are not settled by the essence. So for example, how tall a giraffe is, or that a triangle is painted blue, or that a triangle is touching a square would be, in the Aristotelian terminology, would be accidental properties. So there's actually a kind of tendency in Avicenna to think about existence as an accident, because it's not part of what is contained in the quiddity or the essence, right? So figure out everything you want about the quiddity or essence of a giraffe, it will never sell you anything about existence because giraffe is contingent, right? Can either exist or not. That might be a little bit misleading to think of existence as an accident because actually things need to exist before they can have accidental properties. 
but it's still true that it's not part of the essence of anything other than in the case of God, of course, it's never going to be part of the essence of anything that it exists or fails to exist. And one thing that follows from this, and this is where now getting back to Mark's original question about the flying man, is that when you know what something's essence is, you know the things that have to be satisfied when it exists. So for example, if a triangle is going to exist, then something will need to exist that has three sides. And in general, all of the essential properties must be instantiated once existence comes to the triangle. The flying man is aware of himself, but he is not aware of his body. Mm -hmm. Therefore, since that of which you are aware is distinct from that of which you are not aware, the flying man is not his body. That's basically how he puts it. If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to partiallyexaminelife.com slash support and sign up for membership either on our site or on patreon.com slash partiallyexaminelife. Thanks for listening.